You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. We're going to begin tonight is to go through this book, Manual of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, which is his complete compendium on, on, on how to practice. Uh, it's been translated by the Vipassana Meta Foundation, which is uh, basically organized by Steve Armstrong. And one of the teachers that provided commentary for this book is the one that I study with in Burma. So. Uh, U uh, and Dr. Sayadaw. Um, I'm going to skip the uh, forwards in it and just talk about um, the introduction tonight. Um, according to the Buddha's teachings, the practice of insight and meditation Vipassana enables one to realize the ultimate nature of body and mind to see their common characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and not-self, and to realize the Four Noble Truths. So are you familiar with the conversation that we often have around the three characteristics of of existence, the three marks of existence? Uh, Nothing lasts. This is impermanent for Anicca. Suffering. I don't really like the term suffering much for dukkha. I think of it more as unsatisfactoriness. The, the nature of life is, the, uh, or of the human condition is, unsatisfactory in the sense that we're born, we grow old, we get sick, we die. You've heard the joke of, of why did they fire the Buddhist coroner? because he kept listing the uh, cause of death as birth. <laughs> so, um, so the first level of, de- of, of this unsatisfactoriness is that we're born, we grow old, we get sick and we die. The second level of unsatisfactoriness is that we if we get what we want, we lose it because everything's impermanent and nothing lasts. Um, not getting what you want is a cause of unsatisfactoriness. Uh, getting what you want and losing it, uh, not getting what you want and putting up with the things that you don't want. That would be the second level. The third level is this subtle, ongoing, pervasive irritation that nothing is the way that you would have it if you were actually in control of, it, of anything. So you always have this sense of not really being in control of the circumstances that you face. And there's a kind of fearfulness in being alive that comes from that. The, the third of the characteristics is a not or not self. This understanding that this experience that we have of our ownership of things, our authorship of things, our creation of things, is actually not a solid, intrinsic, ongoing experience, but that something that is also subject to the conditions of the present moment and arises and passes away like everything else. So if you're used to holding on to these ideas that I am the cause of this, I am the author of this, I am the originator of these uh, experiences. To see into the truth of that is to undermine a sense of solidity, of security that you might have and that also can lead to fearfulness. To reject the practice of insight meditation is to reject the teachings of the Buddha and undermine others' faith and confidence in the practice than to abandon the prospect of attaining the path and the fruition. This in some sense is uh, referring to the 16 stages of insight. If you 
uh, fruition would be the taking of a path or enlightenment. This is uh, in Theravada Buddhism, which is what this is describing. Enlightenment is a process of eradicating the ten fetters. And the four-path model of enlightenment, stream entry is the eradication of the first three of the ten fetters. The second path, non-returning, is the weakening of the fourth and fifth fetter. The third path is the elimination of the fourth and fifth fetters. And the fourth path is the elimination of the remaining five fetters. So stream entry is the elimination of the belief that religious ceremony will lead you to enlightenment. It's the eradication of the belief in a solid, intrinsic self-experience, and it's the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. If you've taken the path and you've seen enlightenment, then the sense that you doubt that this path will lead to enlightenment is eradicated. That would make sense. You've seen the thing that you would doubt. The fourth and fifth fetters are craving and aversion. So the second path, once returner, is the uh, weakening, not the elimination, but the weakening of craving and aversion. Stream entry is also a description of the number of times that you'll be reincarnated. So if you gain stream entry in this lifetime, then you have only seven more incarnations to go. The Buddha talked about this path as the elimination of suffering. And actually what that means is the elimination of reincarnation, the elimination of rebirth. The way that you get out of suffering is by getting out of being reborn into this human realm. The second path is called once returner because you have one more reincarnation to go. The third path is called a non-returner because you, you, at that point you've eliminated the necessity of reincarnation in, in this realm. In Theravada Buddhism, which is Hinayana Buddhism, the small or the lesser vehicle, if you were practicing in the Mahayana tradition, then you would have taken a vow to be reincarnated until all sentient beings have reached enlightenment and no one is reincarnated. So then you also have these different views on what actually this means. So this description that we're going to be going through is very centric to Theravada Buddhism only. The Tibetan and the Zen or Chan Buddhist cultures have a different idea about this. And I think in the American uh, way that Buddhism is being formed, often these very different traditional values are brought in. So you may uh, often hear uh, the uh, idea that uh, that we we are intentionally not going to um, we're going to intentionally cause ourselves to be reincarnated until all sentient beings are uh, enlightened and that we can all not be reincarnated at the same time. But I would ask you, where do you sit on this view of reincarnation? Do you think that there is such a thing as reincarnation or do you not think that there is? The second one? Okay. I think it's uh, I think it's possible that there is reincarnation, and it's also possible that there's not. Okay. The reason that I, I'm asking this is because I, I want you to, to begin this process of exploration that we're going to be doing, and to really examine this for yourself. These are what the teachings mean. This is what the teachings are saying. And where do you hold yourself in relationship to these teachings? Do you accept reincarnation? Do you accept karma as a moral uh, feature uh, of existence? Um, 
to reject the practice of insight meditation is to reject the teachings of the Buddha, to undermine others' faith and confidence in the practice and to abandon the prospect of attaining a path and fruition. Would it be surprising to know that in Asia only one out of seven monastics is thought to meditate? So here in the second paragraph of this book by Mahasi, we're seeing that he has a particular emphasis on meditation. If you go to Burma, what's so surprising is that lay people meditating is such a common thing. When we were there uh, in February, one of the things that we would do every time we got into a cab was say, would, would we just ask the cab driver what their meditation practice was. And we would get these long discourses on who the best sayadaws were, what the best teachings were, how they were practicing. And it was so ordinary to have these descriptions of their practice and the benefit of their practice and how engaged they were. To be in a country where meditation is so uh, permeated in, into ordinary people's lives is, was quite surprising. Uh, compared to our culture. Have you ever asked your Uber driver if they <laughs> meditate? <laughs> and what was the response? But here also is this, to reject the practice of insight meditation is to reject the teaching of the Buddha. So there's also this, uh, uh, in some sense, immediately the suggestion that there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And how easily is it for you to follow the, 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 the rules? Particularly around here. <laughs> I know uh, some of us have deep issues with authority and have a very hard time going along with the rules without testing constantly. It was very funny to go to Burma with a group of Western students, where very clearly the dress code was on novice uh, people, white shirts only. And then to see in our group of nine people that I, essentially I was the only one who wore white shirts. <laughs> uh, Longies is a, a kind of traditional dress that you wear in, uh, in Burma. Uh, and there's a different style for men and women, and uh, the women were to wear plain brown longies only. The men were, of course, completely free to wear whatever color that they wanted. This is a traditional culture. And then to see who was willing to do that and who had embroidered flowers all over their supposedly plain brown longie. And, uh, um, you're supposed to wear sleeves that cover your arms so that, uh, and uh, who felt the need to wear uh, sleeveless t-shirts that were cut up down to the waist, you know, in, in this very uh, traditional monastic style. How do you show up? How easily can you accept the instruction that's given or how uh, necessary is it for you to modify the instruction so that you have some sense of power in this. So the, the monastic world is very hierarchical. So I find that, uh, I found it mostly entertaining. The following verse is from the, is from the Dhammapada. The unwise who rely on evil views to malign the teachings of the noble arahats who live the Dharma produce fruit that destroy themselves like the reed that dies upon bearing fruit. So there's also this implied uh, sense of destruction. So do you have a sense of the short, brutish life that we all live? You know what I'm saying? Um, I look around the room and I know that some people have an experience of aging and some people will not yet have the experience of aging. There's this wonderful illusion that youth will go on forever with sort of 
for ashes and burns in your late twenties. <laughs> I find actually humor is the best way to address age. <laughs> so you hit that. Up until that point, of course, you're just growing. Everything is actually improving. You're just getting better. And then there's this turn, and 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 and, and you come into a kind of plateau. There's a sort of dramatic loss of energy that happens around this time. And then you adjust the level of activity that you can engage in. And that stays pretty stable up until the beginning of your 50s, somewhere in the middle of your 50s. There's another precipitous downturn in energy. And you begin to age it in an accelerated rate. So in the middle of life, in the adult period of life, you can, in some sense, engage in the delusion that aging is slow and that you can keep, you know, routine maintenance going and, you know, maintenance lifts, going to the gym, all of the things that we do in our country to uh, create the illusion that aging isn't really going to happen. But when you get into that, that second phase of aging, it, it, it is a relentless march uh, into old age. Most people die in their 70s. Do you think that your life is going to go on forever? And is that how you operate your life? Some people will live into their 80s and 90s, and it's largely genetic. Um, there was a group of uh, people that thought that everybody would want to know this, and so they, they invested a lot of money to develop a genetic test that would tell you whether you have the genes that are likely to prepare you, propel you into your 80s and 90s. And they thought it would be a really hot seller. But it turns out that nobody wants to know. <laughs> if, knowing that this test is available, is it something that you would do now? Go out and find out whether you have the longevity genes or you don't that you could plan to be living into your 70s or plan to live in your, your, your 80s or 90s. It's a different amount of money in our culture that you would need to be able to live these different lengths of time. How often do you think that, oh, I'll just do it tomorrow or the next day or just forget about it until I get a notice in the mail? Um, so there's always the admonishment in, in, in the practice that comes up. The following reflections can arouse enthusiasm for practice and insight meditation. Access to the Dhamma is a precious opportunity. We are very fortunate to be alive at this point in history when we have access to the teachings of the Buddha. It is a tremendous opportunity for all of us. We have a chance to profit from realizing the path, fruition, and Nibbana that are the most valuable dhammas. But this opportunity will pass. Unfortunately, this great opportunity does not last forever. The span of our lives ends before long. Even if our lifespans are not yet over, we could die at any time. And even while we are still alive, we may lose the ability to practice if we become weak or sick due to age, if conditions are too dangerous, if other problems or difficulties arise. So do you have a sense of the remarkable opportunity that you have to practice? And is it something that you prioritize with enough importance that actually you do practice? Do you allocate your time and your resources so that it's organized in a way that allows you to practice enough to reach enlightenment? And so can you take a moment to consider how you organize this to know uh, how you actually value the teaching? Uh, a question would be, as householders, uh, how much time during the day do you set aside for practicing? How much time do you set aside for retreat, for extended practice and retreat? 
And if you're not doing that, what is the consideration that you actually have about that that would allow you to not value it enough that you would take your precious time and resources and allocate it toward something else? Uh, do you watch television and does your television time uh, match or exceed your meditation time? That might be one activity. What is, how is it that you spend your time? Do you, uh, do you meditate as much as you Facebook? So th these are the questions. And what is it that you're getting out of these other activities that you value more than you value the time that you spend meditating? Do you have a sense of what liberation is? Maybe it is that you don't really have an understanding of what liberation is so that you don't value it appropriately. That the thing that you get out of uh, Facebook in the moment is more valuable than the thing you get out of meditating in the moment. And do you know what that is and how you're doing it? So this is a question of mindfulness, but also of how you're going to use this precious life. If you think that there's reincarnation, then you may think that there's plenty of time because you can do it in the next 200 lives. But if you don't think there's reincarnation, and this is all you have, how are you actually using the time that you have? Uh, this question of our, our, our ordinary lifespan, you may think that, well, I'll live into my 70s if I don't have the good genes, and if I have the good genes, I'll live into my 80s or 90s. Um, you know people in their 80s or 90s, do they have the vitality that's necessary for them to be able to practice? And then it's also true that you could, as Anton Yelchin died last night because the car popped out of the park and ran him over. 27. You may have this idea of how it's going to unfold. I'll work now and retire, and then in my retirement I'll go on retreat. We, we have what we call the, 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 the family, uh, what do we call it, trench. So you're, you're, you're younger and you're practicing and you're making retreats, and then you move into your adult life and you find marriage and you find a career and then you have children and then you drop off retreat practice altogether. There's just no time or resources available for it. And then you have this trough of no retreats until the kids leave for college and boom, all of a sudden you can go back to retreat. Is that how you are able to organize it? What do you value? So that's the question. And I want you to actually explore this for yourself so that you have a sense of what you're doing. We should not waste our time. How should we make the best use of this great opportunity after having read this book? Should we be just satisfied with academic learning or teaching? Should we continue to devote all our time and energy to the pursuit of uh, never-ending sense pleasures? Is it not better to practice so that we will not find ourselves helpless on our deathbeds without any reliable spiritual achievement to support us. The Buddha reminded us constantly that we have to practice effectively beforehand as long as there is time. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come, who knows. No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. Have you ever sat with somebody who's dying? Do you know the different ways that, that you can come and go from the world? In my 20s, uh, I lived in New York and AIDS swept through the culture and it was ordinary to sit with people who were dying and most of the time they were enraged at what was happening. Rage to be so sick 
be enraged by the treatment of our culture of them, enraged to be in a hospital and not be able to get anyone to help them, uh, enraged that uh, their lifespan was over. And this is a hard way to go out. It's hard to be the person dying. It's also very hard to be around someone who's dying like that. In our culture, we don't really spend much time on this idea that we're all going to die, and yet we are. It can be afflictive in the way that you hold it. It can make you frightened and uh, cause you to withdraw, to participate less, to try and create some sense of security around that. But on the other hand, it can also be beneficial to be aware of this because it provides a lot of energy to really engage each moment that you have because the moment that you have is the one that, that you're sure to have. All of the other ones in the future are unknowable in that way. Um, have you looked all over your whole body for the expiration date? <laughs> have you been able to find it? If you knew the precise time, the day, the year that you were going to die, would that be relieving? Or would it be frightening? Oh, does it matter? I've got another three years. <laughs> I find for myself that this kind of contemplation actually is energizing to engage in, 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 in life rather than causing me to withdraw. There's an urgency in, in going all in in each moment because that moment will end. The overall lifespan will come and go. I will come and go. Have you ever gone to a flea market and found a shoebox full of someone else's snapshots? You looked through their life in a shoebox that was discarded because no one had interest, enough interest in that. But in some sense, we all come and go in that way. It's only uh, the very, very few that are considered remarkable enough to be remembered. All of us will come and go. The people that will remember us are, are the people that we've engaged, we've touched. When my mother died, her last request of me was that I not forget her which I thought, thought was so interesting. It's, um, she was worried that she was forgettable. Uh, and uh, is, it, is it possible to have spent a lifetime uh, with your mother and not remember her? The, the idea was very strange to me because they have such an incredible impact on just the way that you are. And yet she, she could hold that view that, that she was not worthy of being remembered. It was actually, in some sense for me, a heartbreaking moment to know that she, this is how she, she experienced being in the world. Do you have a sense of, we are all householders here, right? Do you have a sense of, of touching people deeply in your lives? you have a sense of how deeply they've touched your lives and, and can you hold that in, in, in uh, open and kind place? That would be something that householders do that are different. When we go through this book, a lot of the, uh, of the discussion is going to be around monasticism versus laity. So how is it different to be practicing if you want to have a deep practice, how is it different for householders to practice in a deep way that's that isn't, in some sense, the same as monastics would practice? The first thing that they tell uh, novice monastics is to sever all ties outside of the monastery. All ties. So you, you distance yourself from family, from friends, you remove yourself from them, so that they're not pulling you out of the life 
of, of the monastery. And then in some sense you reformed the relationship that would have supported you outside with people in the, the monastery who are devoted in this way to practice. But we are householders who here would be willing to sever all ties with everyone you know. The, the question might be who here would be willing to become a monastic? And when I was in Burma, I went to the largest monastery in, in Burma, which is there are 500 monks. It's, it's like a high school. But in order to get into the high school, you have to declare that you are going to be a monastic for your entire life. Do you know at 14 or 15 that you, that you would uh, commit then to life as a monastic? Is that something that we would know? In our culture, we don't, we don't uh, raise children so that they have the capacity to make those decisions. We have a kind of slower maturity process, maturation process for our children. At high school, we send them to college, and then after college, there's a period of youth. It is, I think, also tied into the nature of our economy. We don't have room in our economy for younger workers, and so we slow down their uh, entrance into the economy. When I was a kid, um, at 18, you were expected to go to college or to get a job and move out and get your own place to live. And the, the, the economy provided for this. You could find a job that would provide you with enough money that you could move into your own apartment. But, that, but our economy isn't really like that anymore for people. It's very difficult to, to move out of high school into a job that would pay you enough that you could afford your own place to live. So we have to look at those cultural factors as well. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep us and keep him and his hordes away. Regret is useless. If we do not practice, although we have the opportunity, we may feel regret when we are sick, old, and weak, lying on our deathbed, or being reborn in lower realms. Before it is too late, keep in mind the Buddha's uh, admonition Meditate, bhikkhus, do not delay or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction for you. Do you have personal experience? Are you able to appreciate the attributes of the Dharma from personal experience? Do you know its attribute, attributes for yourself? Do you know um, that it has been well explained by the Buddha, that it can be empirically experienced, that it gives immediate results, that it invites one to come and see, to realize the truth through oneself. So, the question then is also, why did you come here? What led you to come to meditate? Why did you want to learn to meditate? What was it that you were wanting to get out of it? Um, it isn't like distraction, you know, you can turn on some media and you can distract yourself from it and get a result from that. One of the reasons we distract ourselves is because there's a relief in that, often from distress. In my experience, in teaching, it's like a bell curve. You know, a bell curve, it's a distribution of effect. At one end of the bell curve are people that don't function very well, that they look out at society and all of the success possibilities that are offered and they want to be able to participate in that but they see that the way that they operate in uh, through their conditioning prevents them from actually being able to fully engage in that and so they come to meditation to relieve stress to relieve uh, difficulties in personal relationships to actually be able to participate more fully in life to relieve the the terrible suffering that they feel. And then moving into the main 
part of the curve of the bell curve, nobody comes. They're, they function well enough. Their concerns are really with the, the, the nature of winning in, in our culture, or their, their concerns are with their family or their career. And they do well enough that they don't feel a need for something uh, that takes as much uh, time and effort, as much re resources as meditating until you get to the very top of the curve. People who do very well in life also come and learn to meditate because they've pursued all of the goals that have been recommended to them. They've managed to get them and still they're unhappy because they have not found that sense of well-being, that sense of happiness in, in, in achieving at a high level. They also come to meditate. Um, it's sometimes fun to have them in the same class because the people at one end can barely meditate and the other end they're super meditators and they just want to go fast, 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 get, get, get. Interesting contrast. So where, where are you in this? Why did you come? Why, why are you attempting to practice? What is it that you want to get out of it? When you... Why would you pick, say this style of meditation when there are other also styles available? What is it that resonates about this Theravada path which is, say, different than a Zen Chan approach or different from a Tibetan approach? Notice for yourself what it is that you, you came for, what you want. One of the things um, when I took my first uh, Vipassana meditation class in 1992 in Venice. Um, this was Venice when it was Gangland, not Venice when it was Google Land, but uh, quite different. Um, the teacher went around and said, why did you come? What did you want? And, and I said, I wanted to be enlightened. And the room burst with laughter and even the teacher was laughing because he didn't think it was possible for householders to become enlightened. And this was actually very discouraging for, for me because I was earnest about my desire to be enlightened. But then what I thought enlightenment was actually had nothing to do with enlightenment. I thought if I were enlightened, I would never have any, any other problems and that I would be pain-free. I would have no problems that be pain-free, and that's what I wanted. But I thought that, that that was what enlightenment was. I think, and, and I think uh, uh, one of the reasons that my path in meditation has been the way that it is, that, that householders can have a deep practice, that householders can become enlightened. And so I've organized my practice around people who also believe that and, and studied for the most of the last 20 years with Shinzen Yang, who also is an enlightenment-oriented teacher. So you should pay attention to what it is actually you're trying to get out of the practice that you're in so that you choose wisely in the people that are teaching you. Mahasi has always appealed to me because he also believed that householders could be enlightened and he uh, organized the, the meditation practice and his instructions around that. So this is also the part of what's in the book. So we will we'll be talking about that uh, at, at length in, in this uh, next uh, period of... I'm, I'm going to guess that it's going to take us about 18 months to go through this stuff. <clears throat> I'm teaching an integrated metta-vipassana approach to this, which is going to be different than if you were sitting with a teacher who was teaching a straight vipassana way of exploring this. So that you're going to get this integrated metta-vipassana instruction from me. Um, this is something that Mahasi taught, but he also uh, taught a straight vipassana way of doing it. So I just want you to be aware of how that is with me. Shinzen has always said that 
he hopes that all of his students gets, get at least stream entry in this lifetime. So maybe it's important to understand what stream entry is, what enlightenment is at the, the primary level of it. It is the eradication of the first three fetters. The first fetter being that a belief in religious ceremony uh, will uh, bring enlightenment. Who here believes that ardently practicing religious ceremony will lead to enlightenment? So maybe that fetter you've already eradicated. If you were in a different tradition, you know, we talk in our culture. The, the big uh, scary uh, monster is Islam. But that fundamentalist belief in Islam is what's causing all of these difficulties. I, I would probably argue at great length with you about that. Um, but none of you have raised your hand, so none of you have this practice of religious ceremony that you think will get you into heaven. Into heaven? The second is the eradication of the belief in an ongoing, solid, intrinsic self within you. Do you have a sense of the experience of self arising and passing? Or do you think that you have one experience of self that's continuous and arises in each moment? So maybe this one you're not quite so sure about. So part of this exploration then is going to be looking into the selfing experience so that you know what it is and you can see that it arises based on the conditions of the present moment and when the conditions of the present moment change the experiencing of self changes but you may already know this when you're on your own what is the experience of self like when you're in an engagement with one other person what is that like that experience of this is who I am this is how I am is that experience when you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, this is who I am, this is how I am, the same with every person that you, you're alone with? Or do you notice that the sense of self is different depending on who you're with? And then how do you smooth over those differences in this creation of the ongoing, continuous, intrinsic self-experience? When you're in a small group of people, do you notice that the self-experience is the same as it is with all of the individual engagements that you might have with the experience of self? In a small group, when you're in a large group, is the experience of self you have the same as it is in small groups or with different individuals or the way that it is in your, uh, when you're alone? Do you notice that the experience of self is always there or sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there. So this is a way of investigating the nature of self and then seeing through direct experience that the experience of self arises and passes based on the conditions of the present moment and it is not ongoing, not intrinsic, not solid, not fixed. Does that make sense? So you, you have a deep understanding of that which eradicates the uh, belief in self. It isn't that we don't have a sense of self. We obviously have a sense of self. It's that it's not continuous, ongoing, and the same. It's that it, it relies on the conditions of the present moment to manifest. And then the third is the eradication of doubt, which comes from seeing the nature of the human condition, which in Theravada Buddhism is described as taking a path and, or fruition, but it's also uh, experiencing 
uh, nirota or cessation. Have you heard the term cessation? Cessation of awareness. So cessation of self and world. It ends. There's no experience of it. And then in the coming back of that, you see clearly the nature of the human condition. And really, you see it through the reassemblage of self and world that happens as you emerge from cessation. Um, And in seeing that, you know the nature of what it is to be in the human form. Does that help at all? Make sense? So you come out of cessation, and, and maybe really it's as simple as the, the, the brain turning on again. So it turns off, and then it turns on again. It's not that you fall asleep. It's that awareness has ended, and awareness then reemerges, and, and the, the world begins to assemble. So uh, in the beginning, there is, say, an awareness of uh, a bright maybe jewel-like swirl of colored dots, that nothing is fixed, nothing is formed, there's no language, there's a sense of uh, incredible bliss. And then the world becomes more solid. And then the conditioned response arises again and you see clearly the meaning of everything. The opinion of yourself, the opinion of the world comes back. But because you existed in, in, a, in a, an experience where none of that was present and you see the arising of it again, you know that it isn't intrinsic, that it's something that is conditional and arises and passes and has to the insight into liberation, into freedom. I'm not feeling like I'm doing a great job explaining this, but um, how aware are you of how you assemble the world from your sensing experience? So this would be the the beginning of the exploration. Are you able to tell that this is a sensing experience, so in hearing there's only hearing, nothing heard, no hearer. In seeing there's only seeing, nothing seen, no seer. So that you don't fix anything, you're just in the pure flow of sensing. And then uh, you notice how the conditioned response you have to these things fixates and then the world is there, fixates, and then you're there, and you view yourself in a particular way, and you view the world. In in Buddhism, the world is everybody else. If you can come and go from this fixation, you can see that the way that you fixate it may not actually be reflective of how it is. It's just how your conditioning has made you view it. And liberation is to be able to come and go from this so that you can see the distortion and, uh, uh, and be free of the belief that that's actually how it is. The great advantage of this is that there's no, there's no or very little suffering in being able to come and go from these fixations. Whereas if the world is constantly fixated, but you may also notice is that there's a high level of suffering in that. If you can step out of the fixated world into the unfixated world, there's very little suffering in that. When you, when you find that place, what, what may happen is that you can't believe that you survived at that level of suffering for so long. It's so intense compared to how it might be if you weren't uh, compulsively or habitually fixating it. Does that make sense? I'm actually trying to encourage you to practice deeply here. Maybe I'm... 
maybe you're going to go home and watch TV for the rest of your life as a result of this. <laughs> so, one of the things I love about Mahasi is that he walks you through very slowly um, with how to do this, how to do this thing that I'm describing. That you can move stage by stage by stage, learn the skill that you need in terms of your meditation practice, and have the insight into the particular aspects that lead to the formation of a fixated self and world so that you can undo that and see the two sides of it. It isn't that you want to eliminate the fixated piece, you want to be able to come and go from it as you wish. So, in some sense, the just coming and going from the fixation would be one level of freedom. The coming and going from uh, awareness to non-awareness would be a much deeper level of freedom. If you would come and go from awareness whenever you wanted to, that would be a deep level of freedom. Each time you enter cessation, you return from it. This uh, amazing amount of energy is available to you. So, anyway, I think that that's enough. Huh? Right. Yeah. To come and go. So, we've blabbed away, or at least I have, mostly. Um, is this something that's going to be interesting to you, do you think, to go through this? Do you, is the goal for your practice liberation? If it isn't, I, I would actually encourage you to change your mind and think of this as a possibility so that you'll value it enough that you'll put the resources that are necessary into having a deep practice. Um, but what do you say we sit? We don't have much time left, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending. I want to uh, begin just by doing a, a short period of metta practice. So we're going to do metta for ourselves. We're going to use a simple phrase, may I be peaceful. In the practice of metta meditation, uh, when it's organized in the way that Mahasi did, it's around developing concentration through the practice of metta. So the object of meditation is the mind state of metta. Metta is a Pali word that is often translated as loving kindness. And so what we're looking for is whether the mind is in a state of loving-kindness or not. So that's the main object of meditation. What you would need to know in order to do that is what a mind state of loving-kindness feels like, to know whether it's there or not. So in the beginning, the investigation may be just that. Um, and And I will go into instruction for this in, in depth. But we don't have a lot of time tonight, and so for 15 minutes we're going to sit and do metta practice for ourselves, oriented around concentration. So the primary investigation is the mind state of metta there or not. You may notice this as a process of elimination. If there's all sorts of mind states that are there that are clearly not metta, then you know it's not there and then looking for it. The mind state of metta is always cool, it's always calm, and it's kind. So that if you notice the mind is hot, you do not have the mind state of metta. If you notice the mind is filled with doubt, you do not have the mind state of metta. Does this make sense as an investigation? Uh, Be light. The mind state of metta is light. I, I also... Uh, in my own experience, think of it as bright, if that's helpful. It's a bright mind. So you're paying attention to whether the mind state of metta is there or not, and you're 
repeating a, a metaphrase continuously as a constant reminder of the practice that you're undertaking. So the, the, the phrase is ongoing. Because we're doing metta for ourselves, the phrase is, may I be peaceful. 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 Continuously repeating it. Intending the meaning of the phrase for yourself, paying attention to the mind state of metta, constantly repeating the phrase. If you don't uh, already know this, I record all of these classes and they're put into a Dropbox so that you can keep up even if you don't come to all of the classes. We're going to be moving very slowly through this uh, manual of insight for the next 18 months or so. So if you want to be able to keep up with that but not also come to all of the classes, that if you put your name and email on here, you'll get an invite to the, the Dropbox for the class. Um, I'm also going to podcast them, so you'll get an invite to that as well if you want. Anybody want to do that? Could you pass it back? So how did the meta go? Good? Not a good time. <laughs> yes. I found the noise of the air conditioner strangely soothing. <laughs> it is nice, yeah, I, I think it too. It's like you know it's giving you comfort. It's like the source of the cool air. Yeah. Good. I'm kind of sunburned. <laughs> yeah, so the cool, the cool air on my skin is really a weird sensation. On Saturday, they had a pool at the retreat, so I went for a swim, and the whole top of my head became ferociously sunburned. <laughs> it's as if I've never had a hat off in the sun before. Good. Huh? No, I'm going to do this, the same material twice so that I, I really do want people to engage in a conversation about this and uh, about your own practice in this. So I think that in doing the same uh, material twice, you'll, you'll have an introduction to it and then you'll be able to process it for a week and then you'll be able to come back and engage in the conversation more fully. I really think it's it's useful to begin to consider how you want to practice what you're what, how you want to organize it, and then to begin to have a sense about how to do that with this. Um, I love deep practice, and I think that that it's incredibly useful. Uh, but I also know that that it takes time and resources that you might put somewhere else. And if you don't value it enough, you won't do that, right? So, you know, as an example of that, when I, when I, when, when I got really interested in practice, I decided that I would go on four retreats a year, and I would go once a quarter. But then I had to change my job in order to get a job that would accommodate me leaving. So you really do have to organize if you, if you want to do that. Now that I, I, I've reorganized my life, so I'm going to spend a month, a year in Burma, sitting over there because there's good Dharma in Burma, and, and I and I like that experience, being there and learning in the in that the way that they teach there. So that's also taken some, you know, commitment and management of resources. Um, Anyway, I want you to think about it deeply and, and figure out what you want to do and then talk about how that, uh, what kind of support you need for that so that we can look at ways to, to bring that. Um, 
this is deepening your practice, so I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. One way is retreat practice, as I said. I have a retreat coming up in July at Saka Lake for 12 nights. You can come for six, the first six or the second six. We're giving preference to people who are coming for the whole time. Uh, if you haven't been to Saka Lake, it's up in the wilderness. It's an extraordinarily beautiful place to retreat. There's a lake there, a glacier lake, where you can swim and kayak and canoe if you need some relief. Um, it rained over the winter, so it's likely that there's grass that grew. Um, the first year that we went, there was a lot of grass, so there were a lot of deer roaming around. The second year we went, it didn't rain at all, so there was no grass, so the deer were higher up. Uh, last year, I think, people reported seeing deer and black is it black bears? I said the smaller bears, bobcats, somebody. We all sort of thought we saw a mountain lion, we saw bald eagles. Uh, it's just an extraordinary place to be, to retreat. It's a, it's a meaningful life retreat so that we're going to be looking at relational uh, mindfulness practices in addition to uh, the uh, traditional Satipatthana view. In the fall, ATS is doing a retreat in Joshua Tree, a week-long retreat. I think Dave Smith is doing it uh, with Cheryl Sleen and Mary Stan Cabbage. In the, in the winter, I'm doing another uh, Meaningful Life retreat up at La Casa de Maria in Montecito. So um, that's also a meaningful life retreat, so we'll have a relational mindfulness aspect. It's 11 nights, starting on December 27th. If you haven't been up to La Casa de Maria, it's a, also a lovely place to retreat. It's an old estate that's been turned into a meditation center, um, filled with hundreds of years old uh, live oaks. And then in January, Mary Stan Cabbage and Joanna Harper are doing a women's only retreat out in Joshua Tree. So I will be doing um, my spring retreat next year out in uh, New York, and we'll be doing the Memorial Day retreat here. I'll be doing Zaka Lake again next summer. So that, that gives you kind of a year of retreats to consider going to. Really the thing you want to do is pick the retreat you want to go to, sign up for it, pay for it, tell everyone you know that you're going to go on retreat so that you can't back out without being completely socially humiliated. <laughs> and that will actually get you to go on retreat. And then hopefully the experience on retreat will be so transformative that you'll be motivated to go on another retreat. That tends to be how it works. In the beginning it can be quite frightening to go on retreat. We're, we're used to small talk and these retreats are silent. And so the abandonment of that constant connection can be unnerving. Um, but it does allow you to practice deeply and, and transform in a way that may not be available without that kind of practice. It isn't really the experience on the retreat that, that is how you should evaluate whether it's productive or not. It's the way that you respond automatically to the conditions of life and the weeks that follow the retreat that really show how effective that is as, as a way of practicing. Um, another way to practice as a householder is are to practice intensely. So I have uh, two uh, nine-month intensive classes starting in September. Uh, uh, an intensive, the way that I do it, is two brick-and-mortar classes a month that, are, that will be here on Sundays, two Sundays a month. There are two mentoring sessions, so one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions, half-hour Skype sessions with your meditation mentor to ensure that you're understanding the practice instructions and that you're maintaining your practice and that you're well enough supported that you can go in and do some deep work and then uh, six mornings a week of morning meditation, which is a live conference call every morning at 7.30. I left some flyers up there. If you're interested in, in really supporting a daily practice and you don't uh, find a way to get yourself to do it, 
you can use morning meditation to support that. You call up at 7.30 in the morning, there's a 25-minute guided meditation. The curriculum of the, the guided meditations is organized uh, so that you make progress and insight. It's also a recorded and podcast, so if you can't do it live, you can do the recordings during the day in this way, organize it, uh, you know, a minimal daily practice. Uh, the, there, we do ask for a dana for it, um, and the, the flyers up there will give you a free month so that you can see whether or not it's something that you would want to do. And then uh, in, in support of ATS, if you continue with it every month, part of the dana that you give to uh, Meta Group, my organization, uh, $5 of that will go to the scholarship fund here. Um, ATS, Against the Stream, is where you are. This is a meditation center. And uh, we exist here because of your individual acts of generosity. I know that we've been here almost eight years and that you may think that we just keep going without your help. But actually, we exist uh, largely because your individual acts of generosity. The Pali word for generosity is uh, dana. So we ask for a $15 dana for all of the classes that you attend. We kind of crunch the numbers, and that's a good number for us to be able to keep the doors open and the lights on. One of the things about having a deep insight practice is that it can often be challenging, and it's useful to have people who know about meditation practice to help support you. The best place to meet people who are also practicing is at a meditation center. So having this place, you can come week after week, you can listen to the different voices as people put them into the room, and then you can introduce yourself and form relationships with people who are practicing. If you didn't have a meditation center to come to, how would you find people to help support you in your practice? So it really is a vital part of the community of meditation. And, and so we ask you to practice these, uh, this generosity to keep the center open. What is a meaningful amount of money for you, if, uh, to, uh, a meaningful amount of generosity? What will have meaning for you in this practice? Uh, if you're uh, resourced well enough that, that $15 is good, please do that. If you're not, know that we as a community uh, will keep the place going and we want you to be able to come to it. And if you're resourced beyond uh, what $15 might fe feel meaningful, then please do more. That's also a possibility. If you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated, and we'll see you next time.